by the way, uh, with those, those binders and the, the service orders, uh, you can get them three-hole punched to the right size. We actually have a three-hole punch that kind of corresponds with the size of the binders, and some of the worship orders come pre-hole punched, uh, so, but those are in the box kind of hanging on the wall, so it's, it's all figured out. And you can thank Cal for uh, providing all of those binders, so um, yeah, it's exciting. Well, uh, today we are talking about the Sanctity of Human Life, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And this is going to be a little different from what I normally do, the way I, I normally preach. Usually we open a passage of Scripture, and my desire is to say, okay, what is God saying to us today through what He said to His people long ago in this book? And so I seek to exposit a particular passage. Well, today is more topical. So we will be bouncing around to many different passages. There will be one kind of text that we start with in Genesis that will be our root and kind of will drive us, but today is different. So if you're visiting here, just know that what we're doing today is not normal. This is not my normal practice. I like to let the Word drive us where we're going to go. That should be our steady diet. But occasionally there's a topic that we need to cover, and there's not one specific passage that will go wherever we need. After all, this was written to a different people at a different time, and so there's not always a neat passage that explains everything that we want to explain for our culture today, so we need to go to different places. So that's why we're doing what we're doing today, but wanted to give you a heads up about that. So, as we talk about the sanctity of human life, sanctity just means we're set apart, we're holy, we're special, we have value and worth. It brings us to the question of where does that value or worth come from? Why do humans have worth? We generally accept that human life is unique, has unique value. We breed animals for eating. We breed animals for service. We'll even breed animals for scientific testing. And although there are unethical ways to do all of that, we also believe that there are ethical ways to do all of that. We don't really bat an eye at the fact that we eat animals or test animals or use animals to serve us. But we would never do that with humans. So what's special about us? Why do we have this kind of unique value? And that's, when I say unique value, that's not to say that animals don't have a kind of unique value, but we have a unique kind of unique value. We're a little different. We all intuitively understand that. And even our culture knows that, but our culture ultimately doesn't have a good answer as to why. Sometimes we'll say, well, our culture will try to propose, well, maybe it's because we're intelligence. We can think, we're intelligent. We can think about thinking. You know, there are no cat psychologists that think about being a better cat. They're just cats, and they do cat things. But we, as humans, think about being humans. So is it our intelligence? Well, no, I don't think so, because that would mean that people with greater intelligence or greater ability to think have more value. And also, at certain stages of human development, you could easily argue that there are many animals that have more intelligence and can think more than, than a human could at a given stage. Well, is it our productivity or our creativity, our ability to do things? Well, no. That would make infants and children worthless. They can't really do much at all, but we hold them in the most high esteem. They're the most vulnerable among us. Is it because God made us? Well, no, because God made everything, right? And everything does have a sense of value, but there's some sort of value that we have. So just the fact that God made us and gave us life 
is not why we have inherent special value? Is it because other people love us a lot? Is it the love that people offer us that gives us that value? Well, no, because then people with more people that love them, a greater family, a bigger network of friends, would be more valuable. And we would look at that and say, no, it can't be that either. So our value must come from somewhere else. Anything the world proposes for us having value ultimately falls short. It ultimately leaves God out of the picture because he has a lot to say about where our value comes from. So we're going to dive into the scriptures and talk about our value this morning. So let me pray. Father, help us to have soft hearts, open ears, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. All right, we're going to start out in Genesis today. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 26. As I say that, let me actually pull up the slides, my apologies. Christmas Eve, I did the same thing. I'm ready today. Well, almost. Now I'm ready. There we go. All right. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1, starting in 26. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, so here we have this clear statement that mankind is created in God's image. It's kind of the emphasis that, that uh, Moses, the author of Genesis, is making here. That mankind, the last part of God's creation, was created in God's image. So men and women both were created in His image. And our worth is ultimately grounded in this, but why? Why is being created in God's image what actually gives us worth? Well, we need to look and see what it means to be created in God's image. And there's been lots of philosophical thought about what it means to be created in God's image over the years. And you may have pondered that yourself and been like, okay, made in God's image, what does that mean? How are we in God's image? Because that's not language that we generally use every day. Well, I think the text actually has something pretty clear to tell us about what it means to be made in God's image. Sometimes we forget that we need to go to the text to find out what it means. And Moses is being very clear here, especially within the cultural context that this was written. So let me point out something. There's something, there's a, there's a command basically, or a, a, a phrase that's said twice in this section. And it's the idea of dominion. So God starts, he says, "'Let us make man in our image after our likeness.'" And what's the first thing that he says? Let them have dominion. Let them have dominion. Then he goes on, he creates them in his image, and then he gives them the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion. You see, I think the fish and the birds were also told to multiply and fill 
their respective regions, but mankind is given a unique command. Give, uh, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion. So the image of God is actually, in the text, be, being very clearly linked to having dominion. So what does it mean to be made in the image of God? I think first and foremost, it's having dominion. Having dominion. Well, ultimately, that's important because the one who has all dominion and all authority is God. So because mankind is being created in God's image, mankind is being a reflection of God's authority, showing God's authority, his rule back to him. We are ultimately representatives of God because we are in his image. And this squares with culturally how this word was even used. When in the ancient Near East they talked about being in the image of God, that was a phrase that was usually reserved for a king. The king was someone in the image of God. He was ruling with God's authority. And here Moses takes the image of God and says that God created all of mankind in his image. They all are his representatives. And also another unique thing about images is when you had a king in the ancient Near East, and he ruled a large amount of territory, he would set up images in the distant parts of his kingdom to remind those people of his rule and reign. And so we are a reminder to the world of God's rule and reign. So as we exercise dominion and authority, we are showing the world of God's, or about God's rule and reign, his dominion. But also, we intrinsically have that within us. Think back a couple weeks ago when we talked about the Christ child, who was came, he, the, the, the Magi came and worshipped him. Not because he was actively making any decisions of ruling and reigning, but because he was worthy based on who he was. He had dominion over the entire world because he was God in the flesh, the ultimate king. So because we are made in God's image, it means that we are God's royal representatives. And now why does that give us value? It's because when God looks at us, we are reflecting his glory back to him. It's about God. It's not inherently about us. It's about what God has said we are, that we are his representatives. And praise be to God that our worth is not rooted in what we do, but in what God has said about us, said about us and the tasks that he has given us. No matter how good we can or cannot do any of those things, we have value because of that. We will always have worth, even if we fail to measure up, because when God looks at us, he sees part of himself. And God, of course, is the most pleasing thing to look at. And as God sees us, he sees himself, he is pleased, it brings glory to him. And that is good, that it is not us. That may feel kind of disconcerting that, oh, my, my worth ultimately isn't in me or in anything about me? Well, it's rooted in the divine. That's the most sure thing that it could be rooted in. Praise be to God, it doesn't rest on me. Because when I look at my life sometimes, because I am a broken image of God, it's like a shattered mirror that, yes, you see God shining through, but it's not the whole picture anymore because of my sin. Oh, praise be to God that it is rooted in the reflection and not the fact that the mirror has all these cracks in it. The mirror is showing something far more beautiful. So, our first point for today, if you haven't figured it out, our worth is grounded in being made in the image of God. Our worth is grounded in being made in the image of God. 
We were made to represent him, and even though that image is broken, we still represent him. And because we are representing him, when there is an attack on any image bearer, it's an attack on God himself. When you attack an image bearer, you attack God himself. I mean, think about it. When someone is so upset at themselves and they're looking in the mirror and they hit the mirror, are they attacking the mirror? No, they're attacking themselves. And the same thing is true, that when we attack an image bearer, we are attacking God himself. I want to shift gears a little bit. I want you to hold this in one hand, this idea that our worth is grounded in being made in the image of God. And I want to talk about how God views the least of these. Fits in very nicely with what Sherry just shared about these prisons in Haiti. I want to briefly look at uh, some just examples of the Old Testament alone. As God was speaking to his people, telling them what they needed to do and be like in, uh, in their nation. Because this ex- reveals to us God's heart. So, uh, let's look in Exodus chapter 22, verse 29 to, or 21 to 24. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. That just means foreigners. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. I'm just going to read through these so you get the picture. Deuteronomy 10, 17 to 18. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Deuteronomy 14, 28 to 29. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your town. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Let's move to the wisdom literature, looking at the Psalms. Psalm 68, 5. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Psalm 146, 9. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. And then in the prophets, Isaiah 1, 16 to 17, Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Jeremiah 7. 6 and 7. If you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Now, there were far more verses that actually I wanted to read and had to cut them for time this morning. But you see a theme here. There's three categories that keep popping up again and again. The sojourner, the orphan, the widow. God cares deeply about those three categories. And as he was telling Israel how they ought to live, he kept mentioning them. Why? Those were the least of these. Those were the most vulnerable. Those three categories were the people that had no way to make a true and consistent living for themselves. Why? Because they didn't have land. 
They didn't have a way to cultivate anything. They didn't own property. And so they were the ones that could most easily be oppressed. And so they were the ones that God continually said, you need to care for these people. They are near and dear to me. And why? Because they are in the image of God. They're not inherently more valuable than someone else, but they are more vulnerable than somewhere, somewhere else. And so God says they need extra protection. And when God is rebuking his people time and time again, it's for things like this, where they fail to love the least of these in their society. So our second point, God cares for and defends the most vulnerable. God cares for and defends the most vulnerable. It's interesting. God doesn't really say anywhere about protecting the weakest animals. You don't find it. Even in nature, the weakest animals are the ones that get eaten. We don't really think anything about it. But in the lives of people, in the ways we structure our society, God has a lot to say about that. He says, these are the ones that you must care for. So, okay, I want to hold these two ideas. This idea that our worth is grounded in being made in the image of God and that God cares for and defends the most vulnerable. And I want to draw just some ethical implications for us in our lives today. And I want to look at the beginning, the middle, and the end of life. And this is, I told the elders earlier, this is an equal opportunity offensive sermon. So I will poke both left and right. And so I, I hope that something I say will unsettle you today. I'm incredibly nervous about this because I think up to this point, I haven't said much controversial in my time as pastor of this church, um, but there's a first time for everything. So uh, we're, we're going to talk about some things. And I do want to say today that ultimately I want to talk more about postures of our hearts and things that we care about as opposed to national policy or whatever. But obviously policy does get influenced by our posture. And so um, there's just no way to really separate those things. I'm not trying to get political, but I do want our lives, as Dale said earlier, to basically reflect and, and we want to live by a biblical ethic because we are God's people. So let us be faithful to what God has said and not be ashamed of it, even if it upsets people on both the left and the right. It doesn't mean we're trying to find ourselves in the middle, but we're trying to find ourselves on the side of God. All right, so you ready? Let's talk about the beginning of life. The beginning of life. This really raises the question when we talk about the beginning of life, when does life start? When can we say that the image of God is actually here, residing in us. We have to ask that question. Even this past week, on Monday, January 2nd, front page of the New York Times, Elizabeth Diaz of the New York Times wrote an article called, When Does Life Start? And he was asking that question from a secular perspective. But the, our culture understands that this is a big question. No matter how much they don't want to answer that question, because sometimes the answers can be scary, they understand that's an important question that we need to ask. Because if all human beings bear the image of God, then we better know when life starts. Well, I think the Bible unequivocally teaches that life starts at conception. By conception, I don't mean implantation, I mean fertilization. If you move conception to some other arbitrary time, 
that maybe the fertilized egg is connected to the uterus, well, that's, that's arbitrary. Because then it's like, well, why is that special? I think ultimately we have to say it's when a new human being is created. When the sperm and the egg come together, there is fertilization. And God says, let there be life. And a life forms. I think that is when, that is when we have the image of God. Because we're not souls that are implanted in bodies. We are body-soul unions. Body-soul unions. I've talked about that before. So let's look at the kind of the biggest verse that really draws this out. It's Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16. It says this, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. This is written by David, and here David is talking about this idea that God knew him from the beginning. There was no, hey, God, you were forming me, and I wasn't me then, but I'm me now. It's like, no, you were forming me. That was me. And we can't refer to our part of ourselves as if it's not us. So here we have, from the perspective of David the psalmist, very much that life is coming at the very beginning. That he was always in the image of God. I want to show you this. This is, uh, this is a human being. Very soon uh, after fertilization, we have several cells. It's multiplied a couple times. I couldn't really find a good picture of just a, a single cell, but uh, you know, I think there's you know, six or eight uh, cells here. But this is a human being. I remember being in, in a, my ethics class in seminary and the professor putting up a picture like this, and he said to us, you know, this is a human being, and it looks like a human being. And you look at it, you're kind of like, um, I don't know about that. But then he said this, yeah, this is what all of us look like at this age. It's like, oh, yeah, this is exactly what God designed human beings to look like at that age. Just as my toddler, who's this tall, looks like a toddler, doesn't look like an adult. All of us, we looked like that. And we weren't capable of much when we were that. <laughs> we were capable of being, and that's about it. But that's who we are. That person, whoever that is, is a person created in the image of God and is worthy of full dignity, full love and acceptance. So here's kind of as we're going. This is kind of the main point. Because all people may, are made in the image of God and because God cares for the least of these, at the beginning of life, even the youngest human should not be killed. Even the youngest human should not be killed. Now, there's a reality. I know in a group this size that uh, it's very possible uh, that you may have had an abortion. And I don't want to speak just to the women. There may be men in here who have pressured pregnant girlfriends or wives to have an abortion. And if you are in that camp, I want you to know that there is grace and mercy. And that Jesus' grace and mercy is available to you as well. There is no sin that Christ's death on the cross cannot cover. If we have faith in Christ and believe that he is God, believe that he died for us, he tells us, 
Yes, all of your sin is covered. You are forgiven. You do not need to walk in shame. And so we do not judge you. We do not condemn you. Instead, we call you to walk with Christ and to say that your sin is forgiven if you turn to him in faith and repentance. Jesus has not condemned me, and so I do not condemn you. You are welcome here. And I, I invite you to be a full participant in us as a family. It does not matter what you have done in your past. You are fully loved. You are fully loved. I think for us as a church, we need to make sure that we make it easy for young women in our church and outside of our church to bring their babies to term. That we don't pile on shame. That we don't make them feel guilty that instead we embrace them with love, we give them the biggest baby shower you could possibly imagine, and that we celebrate their child, and that no child is an accident. No child is an accident. Maybe the mother and father did not plan it, but God did. God did. I praise be to God. Um, my nephew, Rox's nephew by blood, um, was conceived when Rox's sister was 16. And uh, they did not abort the child, and that nephew is now, oh, what, 23, 24? And just while we were home, got to talk to him and hear about how he's growing and the things he's talking about. I talked about just even my philosophy of preaching, and he was so just interested in it. And, and I just think, wow, because of the choice that his mother made so many years ago. And um, yeah, I wasn't planning on sharing that, so uh, he may even listen to this. So Austin, if you listen to this, hey, talking about you, bro. We as a church need to be for adopting and fostering at all stages of life. All stages of life. Even, I don't have the picture up there, but even that stage of life. Well, I did not think this would be emotional today. All right, can we talk about middle of life? Middle of life. Let's go there. Because let's talk about who the least of these are in our society. You know, they are still the immigrant, the poor, the prisoner, the orphan, the widow, the oppressed. Micah 6.8 says this, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. It's God's command to us when we think about how we're interacting with the people around us. This is what we must do. So here's our point. Because all people are made in the image of God, and because God cares for the least of these, we ought to seek justice and have a posture of compassion. Seek justice and have a posture of compassion. It can be scary to kind of talk about the idea of justice nowadays. That word gets tossed around a lot, but the scriptures have a lot to say about justice. And it's not necessarily saying in a court of law, this is what we do, but it's talking about acting rightly towards the poor and the oppressed. There is a thing, uh, or not a thing, in, in Leviticus 19, the scriptures say this, you shall do no injustice in court, you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. I am not anti-death penalty. I want you to hear me clearly on that. I think the Noahic covenant in Genesis 9 is still in effect. But, the way we do the death penalty in our nation is broken. It is almost impossible for a rich person to be given the death penalty. 
And God warns us against that in this very verse and says that we need to not give preferential treatment to the poor or the great, the rich. But that's what we do in our justice system. So what does it look like for us as a people of God? I know in a, in a culture in this area, northwest Iowa, there will be many pro-death penalty people, especially in our congregation. And I would number myself in that group. But how can we make sure that as we advocate for something like the death penalty, and by the way, there's a good Christian argument against the death penalty, so I'm not, I'm not trying to, to, to bash people that find themselves on the other side of the spectrum. But if, what does it look like to advocate for the death penalty, but also say something's broken and we need to do it better? Because right now, we're not doing it right. We're not doing it as God has said we ought to do it. And we shouldn't just say we need to do it because it's good and God says for us to do it, and so we're going to do it no matter how wrongly we do it. God says a lot of things to his people about how they're doing the right things the wrong way, and he says you are equally guilty because you are doing the right things the wrong way. And that's disgusting to me is what he says. May we not be that kind of people. May we be a people who does what God desires rightly. So we've got to seek justice. And we also need to love kindness. In other words, we need to have a posture of compassion where we seek to have compassion. And that's rooted, of course, in God's character. We've talked about that uh, week after week. And one way to walk in compassion, and I'm preaching to myself in this, is to seek to understand. When you encounter someone who's walked a different life of you, who is in a different place, seek to understand first. Where are they coming from? Where are they coming from? And understand that a lot of things are complicated. That doesn't excuse sin. Complication doesn't excuse sin. But sometimes it does help explain it and can help us, if we're understanding it first, can help us to be merciful and compassionate. So can we seek to have mercy compassion, and compassion and empathy? All right, let's talk about the end of life. So being made in the image of God and caring for and defending the most vulnerable has serious implications for this. And so I want to talk about euthanasia, or the so-called good death. There's been a push within many Western nations for physicians-assisted suicide, or even, I, I think that's basically equivalent to euthanasia. You know, technically they're not really the same thing, but I, in, I think philosophically speaking, they are. But euthanasia is the good death. And the idea basically is that the suffering I'm in now makes life not worth living, and it would be better for me and my family if I were just to die and not be here anymore. The scriptures tell us there's no such thing as the good death, because death is our enemy. Death is not something to be pursued. It is something to be conquered, and it was conquered through Christ. So yes, we do experience a natural death at some point, and we don't want to unnecessarily prolong life just because, but at the same time, we don't run towards death as if this life is something to be escaped. God asks us to walk through suffering and trust that what we are learning is glorifying to Him, especially as we show the world what it's like to suffer. What do we look at on Christmas when we talked about the temptation of Christ? It's a matter of walking through suffering, not avoiding the cross, but embracing it. So when we come to the end of the, our lives and we feel like, I have nothing to live for, my life is awful, I'm in incredible physical pain, it doesn't mean I run away from that, but I say, Lord, help me to cling to you and to show people what it looks like to cling to you. May we be that kind of people. We can't redeem death by choosing when it happens. We don't have that right. 
Because we are image bearers, and taking the life of an image bearer is saying to God, we are going to destroy your image any way we put it. Our lives are not ours to take. One of the sad consequences of euthanasia and how it affects the least of these is that it goes from being a choice to becoming a responsibility. And you're starting to see this in places like Canada. It goes from a choice to a responsibility to an obligation to where you have no choice. I'm responsible to do this because I will relieve the burden on my family. Now it's an obligation. I must do it. And then all of a sudden, either the family or the state is telling me, no, we will relieve you of your life because your life is not worth living. We're seeing now that some families are saying, my grandfather had a physician-assisted suicide, basically euthanasia, and he was talked into it. We didn't get any say in it, and we feel like he was pushed into it. There are stories of that coming out of Canada, and it's horrifying, where we're beginning to wonder how much agency did these people actually have. You go from choice, responsibility, obligation, no choice, is the path that that takes. Because all people are made in the image of God, and because God cares for the least of these, we cannot seek to end life prematurely. How do we fight this? How do we fight this? I think first and foremost, we care for the elderly. We need to sit with them and be with them and help them know that they're valued and we want to listen with them, listen to them. We're not abandoning them. We're not shoving them away to the nursing home so that we don't think about them anymore. And that's not to say that nursing homes are bad. But what I'm saying is, is that we are with people. We're helping people understand that we are with them to the very end. Because that's the path all of us are going to take. May we be a church where nobody is lonely and separated. So guys, as we just wrap up, let's celebrate the fact that we are created in the image of God. Our value doesn't rest in us, but in God. May we have a posture at the beginning, the middle, and the end of life that celebrates the image of God. May we celebrate all life, planned and unplanned. May we seek justice and have compassion. And may we endure suffering and help others know that they're valued in love, especially those who are at the end of their life. Praise be to God that he has placed his image in us and cares for us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that we do find your image in us. Thank you that you care for us, not because of things that we do, not because of how capable we are, not because of potential we might have or our creativity or our ability to love, but we are in your image. We show what you are like to the world because we have dominion. No matter how well or much we exercise that dominion, we show the world what you are like, and we praise you for that. Father, help us to be a church that has compassionate heart. Help us to be a church that seeks justice. Help us to be a church that cries out for what is right in every area, every season of life, even if it grinds against the political winds. Father, may we see that we need to be faithful to what you have called us to be. May we not be afraid of the world, but may we speak your truth both to each other and to our neighbors. May we glorify you as we do all of those things. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.